Hi there, it's Mark Lee, and you're listening to Low Profile. Hey, this is Mark Lee. Hey, man, it's Chris Newkirk calling. Howdy, Chris. How you doing? Doing pretty good. You know, just uh, right. doing some homework, listening to the Julies. Not too bad. <laughs> That is the homework I'm assuming, listening to the band. Oh, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't do this on my own time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just uh, I'm no, totally playing. This is 100% my idea. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh. formed in 1992 in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, and broke up a little while before their only official release came out. But that didn't stop their music from making a connection with the few people who discovered it. Their 1997 EP, Love Life, has just been reissued on vinyl by Lost in Ohio Records. I spoke with their singer and lyricist, Chris Newkirk, as he reflected on his brief time in this project and the weight it still carries today. So you're in Jersey now, but yeah. um, the, this band you were in, what what do we want to say, like 23 years ago? Oh, geez. Uh, from 1992 to, I think, 1997, we were wow. um, together. And then when we broke up with the four of us, four out of the five of us went on for another year under another name. So we were called Riviera after that. Um, Riviera, okay. Yeah. Yeah, we couldn't break free from the 90s band name kind of vibe. <laughs> Riviera. We wanted to, you know. Um, but yeah, we, we, we played, uh, we wrote and played and, uh, for another year or more, maybe maybe up to two. We had, a, so the four of us went on, we had another guitarist join us. Um, so we were still a five piece, but... <clears throat> But we're skipping straight to the end here. Yeah, we're straight, yeah. It's, always, <laughs> it's a short story. So oh, so um, I, I was reading the extended liner notes that came with uh, the yeah. reissue of your band's Love Life EP, um, right. which I first bought when I, I'm going to say I was uh, 15 or 16 years old when that came it's out perfect age for it, man. it oh <laughs> man yeah no i was looking over the lyrics and it just like took me right back to you know being like in my room either cranking it up or having headphones on and uh you know just kind of i also in the liner notes for this love life thing um there was a little note that said send a self-addressed stamped envelope for yes. the lyrics <laughs> yep 
And I was just, yeah. I, I wasn't even really worried about it to begin with, but um, I saw that and I was like, hell, I got a stamp. Okay. So <laughs> <laughs> I used to send those out like on a weekly basis. I used to get, we used to get a lot of fan mail and, um, you know, sometimes it, we would get like handmade uh, creations from fans, but sometimes we would just get the self-addressed uh, stamped envelope for the lyrics and a dollar because I asked, I charged a dollar. <laughs> oh yeah, I think that my, was in for there. my time. I don't know. I mean, fans are gonna make a money one. Fans gonna make money one way or another. Uh, yeah, you gotta buy it. So you know, ink or pay for copies. <laughs> I uh, you know I, I I printed them off my dad's printer. He had an office in his, in in my parents' home, uh, and I just printed a batch off. So I did. It was just profit. It was just enough. Uh, it was beer money, I guess. I don't know. Um, but yeah, a few a few dollars here and there. But no, that people people sent every a lot of people sent those self addressed stamps in, and and sometimes with letters for the lyrics. I was a little surprised to be. To be frank, and I think it was suggested to us maybe by the label at the time to do something like that. Because originally, when we um, released that, uh, the the CD was going to have like multiple pages and different pictures and the lyrics, etc. And it just kept shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. Well, this was it was on Flying Tart Records, yeah. I, yeah, I think a lot of their records were really. Um, kind of budget style releases <laughs> and they would sell their stuff pretty cheap from what i remember too well, they were going bankrupt through almost the entire relationship i found out towards the end so i think that would probably account for the the budget aesthetic was probably more about their uh bookkeeping and profitability more than anything we didn't know that when we uh when we signed uh, with them and the signing with them was a sort of just a what we thought was just a you know a pit stop on the way we just wanted to release one thing with them and that was the deal we signed uh, but it turned into quite an adventure to get that one thing out and in the end it came down to the fact that they were just uh, I guess they just overspent on a few things and then they can never get back out from behind that eight ball and you know gradually uh, they you know lost their their label but we were one of the, they they already paid for our release etc so it was just a matter of getting it out there it almost didn't get out there um but then when it did they went they went they went bankrupt while well, when you know they released it and then went bankrupt uh, and it was over for flying tart wow yeah they were um i I kind of I I had an interest in that label before the Julies came out because they were I was mostly listening to Christian music that you could buy at the you know at, at your corner Bible shop. Um yeah. And somehow this weird indie label had worked their way into that machine and uh <laughs> yeah. I, they sold this compilation called Starball Contribution. Yeah, like yeah, we were on three that, or four yeah. bucks. Yeah, you guys came up on the, I think it was like the second track. It was Wake Up, Christine.
Um, I mean, there was a lot of bangers on that CD from what I remember, and a lot of like really off the wall shit that you would not find, you know, on like say like a Christian contemporary radio station. Totally. It was very like lo-fi and yeah. authentic and sincere. And but, but then um, they had some. Wasn't like Sixpence None the Richer on that too, or they were they had a few bigger you know, more mainstream sounding bands as well. I mean, that sort of, you know, had one foot into sort of the indie aesthetic, but, um, but yeah, they just, that whole scene, they just cast a wide net sonically. It was just like, you know, if you weren't going to be, you know, if you didn't sound absolutely mainstream or if you weren't going to be played on, on a major radio station, then you were good enough for them. But, But were you guys even trying to get into that circuit? Uh, the Christian indie rock circuit? Or yeah. No, we, no. In fact, it just kept coming for us. We we didn't have any interest in it, really. I didn't. None of us really grew up listening to Christian rock, if you or whatever you would call it, contemporary Christian music, or um, yeah, we have had that in our families. I, I remember my parents at one point listened to stuff like uh, Keith Green, but I don't. Sandy uh-huh. Patty, I remember that name. Um, I don't remember any songs. I didn't grow up with it. I remember at one point they bought a tape at a Christian bookstore by Phil Kagi. Um, sure. So somebody said, maybe it said, if you like this, um, then buy this. That was a big move in the, yeah, in that industry. If you walked into one of those stores, they got like a chart up. Yeah. here's all the you know the bands you're not allowed to listen to okay well that's it if you like yeah. these bands in the next column is um here here's what you call that genre of music and then the next mm-hmm. is uh christian acceptable alternatives to these bands and yeah. uh and i i never felt comfortable with that I, to be frank i mean the idea is that you're not allowed to listen to this band. So here's a band that sounds just like them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And really those bands, you know, speaking as one of those bands, we were, we were, one, we were always envisioning ourselves as the band that you weren't allowed to listen to, not the band that you were allowed to listen to, just by virtue of where it was sold. Our lyrics weren't any different than they would have been uh, otherwise. And I think that's the case for a lot of the bands uh, in that sure. scene. Yeah. I just think that there was an easy opportunity to get your music out and your music heard. And I don't mean to sound that it, make that sound mercenary, but, you know, for our story was that we were out playing in New York and major labels were coming out to see us and cool indie labels um, were coming out to see us. We, you know, had Sire Records come out and A&M Records. And uh, then I remember there was a... Uh, indie label called Zero Hour, which was big in the early 90s, um, the mid-90s, and they came out with a contract. At, and we played a show at CBGB's, and then uh, they didn't like our stage performance. We moved around too much. They were very much a shoegaze label. Uh-huh. Oh, um, and you weren't shoegazing so enough. <laughs> we were, yeah, they, they liked our, our sound because we sounded shoegaze, but then we moved around a lot yeah the uh, oh yeah that's very taboo the story goes uh, they, they told our manager that the f- the front man reminded him too much of marky mark 
which at that time, I guess, was a backhanded compliment or a straight up insult. I can't tell which, um, you know, if I looked a little bit more like him fitness wise, I, I'd take it more as a compliment, but I did not. I drank a lot of beer in that time. Um, but, but, you know, he danced better than I did. And that meant, I think it at least took it as a compliment for my moves, but maybe not so much my performance overall in terms of the scene. So, um, whatever. I'm going to uh, go out on a count. limb and say that maybe beer was the wrong drug for that scene. <laughs> probably, <laughs> probably too. I mean, uh, yeah, I think, you know, I needed a more emaciated look, first of all, so beer wasn't going to help. And then I think in terms of, yeah, your performance, I think maybe, uh, you know, you need something that's a little bit more... <laughs> That's you kind of like vibe in with the music a little bit more than beer. So I look maybe like we were more in, f- in for a pub fight than, uh, you know. Yeah. Kind of having a, a more psychedelic experience. And uh, that label, at least, uh, <laughs> found that contrary to their their vision for their vans. And so, so it goes. I mean, I... I might argue that you guys did sneak in some lyrics that sound like like you know, phrases that would show up on Christian radio, <laughs> but that turns out they're more like like Christian pickup lines or something. <laughs> well, that's an interesting take. <laughs> well, I, yeah. So give I, me give me an ex- give me an example. I've got a heart full of God, but my eyes are full of you. Oh, that does, uh, yeah, to your point, that, yeah, it does sound like that, doesn't it? Um, uh, But no. (laughs) Not the intention intention behind the lyric, but I like that, Christian pickup lines. What's the other one? Baptize you in kisses. That's a good one. Yeah. I don't know. I mean... No, no, I like that take. I, I think really what it was is you're talking about, first of all, like music is probably the language of relationships, right? Or language of at least courtship. Sure. Um, and, you know, again, I said that you were perfect age when you were listening to Love Life. You, were, you said you were 16. I was probably an overgrown teenager in my early 20s and mid-20s when we made that stuff. Um, and I think as a, a kid that grew up in a Christian home, in like I guess an evangelical Christian home in the you know seventies and eighties, um, you know you, you you're, you're sort of constantly wrestling with that identity versus the identity that you're forging on your own as an artist, as a musician, as a, as a human, uh, as a sexual being, as an intellectual being, and I think in a lot of the lyrics. There's this marriage um, that of that religious imagery and um, that like human intent. So I'd say a lot of those lyrics probably describe a sheltered. I wouldn't say sheltered, maybe, but um, but someone that was you know a kid raised in the church that was dealing with lust, dealing with wanting to fall in love, dealing with um, you know flings and relationships and 
there was a lot of tension in that for me, and I got that out in writing. Yeah. So uh, I think if you go and you read the lyrics, uh, like those ones you mentioned, contextually in this song, you might find like uh, the whole thing plays out as more of like a struggling with something like, uh, you know, womanizing or, you know, virginity and losing it or something like that. I, um, I'd have to go back and read them myself and relive those moments. But, but that tension was manifested in me, you know, sort of playing it out in lyrics. So playing with the identity, the, the multiple identities that I, you know, that, that I grew up in and that I was forging on my own. a lot of references to heaven and hell on that record I think um, yeah by the way I have to laugh at all that now because <laughs> you know your mindset changes so drastically as you move through time I can't I have a hard time fathoming that that was that much of an identity issue and attention and I just didn't live my life as you know my heart dictated a little bit more but that I overthought it and had to wrestle those two sides of my identity or my, my thinking. January has come out, and this is an EP that you recorded prior to Love Life. But yeah, it's that was just the first seen its thing we made. wide release on the cassette format and then on <laughs> infinite release digitally. Yeah, which is weird because Love Life isn't available digitally, um, not on streaming services and, yeah. and like, but, but January is, and January has always been this thing where people have gotten my email or even back in the day phone number and have tried to track that thing down. Um, it's been, I think since Love Life um, allegedly sold so many copies and was so widely heard, and that was the only thing we ever did, it slowly got out that there was this, what was essentially a demo tape to get shows and to get, you know, a label interested, um, which, you know, you know, it's the January EP, but we didn't really even see it as an EP. It was our demo. It's mm -hmm. something that really got sent out in the mail more than bought. We sold it at shows. Um, but now everybody can hear it again, and it's been a trip because it's it's literally this artifact from our past. Um, Did the Julies ever go on tour, like get way out of the element? You know, I wouldn't call it a tour. We just did little weekend jaunts. Um, the label 
you know, had intentions of us touring and playing like festivals and stuff. Um, but they went belly up and then, you know, because it took so long for them to release the record, we, we ended up breaking up in the time. We were broken up before, before the record actually was released. I think I so heard long. about that. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. So we just couldn't wait any longer and the tensions of, of waiting. And then we decided to go on for fun with, with the band Riviera after that. But um, we ne- we, then we were like, all right, we play with these Christian indie bands and that's sort of what we do now. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and Riviera will be that. And then we'll maybe just release something on that and play a couple of festivals. But then even that, by the time... Uh, we did that for a year. We were like, yeah, we're not even going to pursue this. Life, life started <clears throat> swallowing people up. Yeah. So it just, it just didn't happen on the time frame that was given to us. But yeah, it's, it's, it's strange. It's strange to be in a band that was half a lifetime ago that didn't really go anywhere, really. Um, and then people still care. I, I definitely struck by that, and I've um, had a milestone birthday this year, you know, I've been around a while now, and it it was all around, you know, that's right when the re-release was, you know, I was working with the label to get the, the uh, Love Life re-released, and it just, just sent me back in this nostalgic, uh, you know, time tunnel of sorts, where I'm just reliving uh, those those Julie days, which which were some of the best years of my life. So it's it's pretty cool to, again, half a lifetime later, like, still be talking about this, even though it's you know, <laughs> there's much to talk about uh, in terms of the actual adventures of the band. But um, you know, we didn't travel the world, and you know, we didn't. We weren't on a plane with Bono or anything like that. Um, and I have friends that you know have done so much more with their bands and bands we played with. But uh, it's cool to have, it's cool to be at this point where people still, you know, excited about a demo tape of sorts being re-released, and then the, the our other big, you know, release being put on vinyl. And it's been pretty exciting to me to actually, you know relive that and hold the vinyl like it's not something you thought about in the 90s maybe a seven inch but right yeah. not like having a record uh, sort of seemed like a bygone thing or maybe if you're really big so you know with that whole renaissance it's been cool well yeah i guess julie's don't have a lot of crazy antics to speak of but you guys got together and you made some music we and did. Maybe we. Maybe we will again. Who knows? There, or there's been conversations. Um, even the, maybe a, a little, a little teaser. At least two of us are definitely doing something. Maybe maybe more of us. Everything we we're trying to do is to be the, the, or at least for me. I always wanted every song to feel like the last trap. The last thing you hear in an '80s movie, right? <laughs> like, yeah, totally. They could play. It could play you out and. Uh, have that cinematic quality and uh thus they all they all feel relational all the songs a lot of them feel like they're about relationships love life is that a lot of it is literally about relationships less the title but um but yeah there's times where i'm just like i was like at that time of my life i was really into poetry and i put all my like grown-up energy into writing 
poems and then all my teen angst into writing Julia songs. So, uh, you know, I probably, I should have probably brought a little of the former into the latter. A yeah. little of that poetry, <clears throat> but oh well. Hey, no regrets. This is the mark I've left with the world. So, and my favorite Julie's moment, I'll give you this last thing, is um, the very beginning of Boy Wonder on Love Life. Mm-hmm. That intro of the drums and then the two guitars coming in and uh, over the bass. And that is my favorite moment, one of my favorite musical moments ever. And where I feel like, even though I had nothing really to do with the playing, I feel like I achieved a musical dream <laughs> with that, just that moment. And when I'd go to listen to them, sometimes all I needed to was listen to the Julies again, which I do rarely, but I'd just go and listen to that part. That's all I need sometimes. Thank you so much for hanging out and diving in, going on a time travel here mentally. Yeah, brother. Thanks for having me. conversation with Chris Newkirk of the Julies. He currently works in advertising and has continued writing songs, including some that were commissioned for film, sung by Ian McGlynn. The Julies album Love Life has been recently reissued by Lost in Ohio, as well as their original demo, January, in a digital format. Thanks for listening to Low Profile. Catch you soon.
Hey, you're still here? Well, um, if you support this show on Patreon, you'll be entered into a drawing to win an autographed copy of the Julie's Love Life LP that has been given to us by Lost in Ohio. So, go to patreon.com slash lowprofile and sign up. Uh, flexible monthly donations. It really helps the show out. And uh, even if you don't win the drawing, I'll still send you some swag. Thanks a lot. Catch you later. Subscribe, like, share, tell a friend, call your neighbor, kiss your dog. Love with Mark Morrison.